You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Thank you, Stuart. Oh, I'm very loud. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at just four verses tonight from uh, probably one of the greatest chapters in one of the greatest books ever written. Um, I don't think that's an overstatement. I texted my old man. He asked me to come and preach, and uh, I texted him asking if I could preach on Romans. And he replied by saying, I don't think we've ever done Romans in St. Peter's, uh, to which I replied, that's an absolute travesty. Uh, So we're going to make amends for that this evening by looking at just uh, four little verses from Romans chapter 8. It's worth getting our bearings in this chapter because we're just diving right in here as to what Romans chapter 8 is about. What, What the Apostle Paul does in the letter of Romans, in the first four chapters, he lays out what the gospel is. Uh, And he talks about how the gospel is this amazing power that God has brought upon us to make us righteous before him. It's a gospel that unites both Jew and Gentile. And then from chapters 5, really all the way through to chapter 11 in the letter, Paul lays out um, some objections perhaps that the Roman Christians would have been having about the gospel. So how can the gospel be true if dot, dot, dot? And I think in Romans chapter 8, The big theme of Romans chapter 8 is assurance. Paul wants to give these Christians that he is writing to assurance that what they believe about Jesus, that what they know about the gospel is true, that what has happened to them is real. And so in this chapter, he deals with two big threats that are very common today, two threats to Christian assurance. They are the threats of sin and the threats of suffering. So in verses 1 to 11 of Romans chapter 8, he deals, um, it's a continuation really from chapter 7 as well, he deals with the issue of sin. So the question then is, uh, if the gospel's true, if I've been saved, if I am really declared righteous by God, then why is it, as a Christian, that I still sin? That's what Paul deals with there. And then in verses 12 through 17, you've got the heart of Romans 8, which is all about how God, by his Holy Spirit, has made us children of God. This really is a chapter about what it looks like to be a child of God by the Spirit of God. And then in verses 18 through to 30, which is just before the section we're going to look at, Paul talks about suffering. So if the gospel's true, if I have been declared righteous by God, then why is God allowing so much pain and suffering in my life? The two threats that Paul deals with in this chapter, sin and suffering. These are two things that make us doubt the gospel. These are two things that make us doubt whether or not we really are saved. These are two things that make us doubt whether or not God really does love us. And that's why we we spent eight weeks in my church in Edinburgh, Chalmers Church, eight weeks just going through this chapter and it had a real profound effect on our congregation because this is so real it's so raw and it's so relevant it resonates with what we feel today as Christians sin and suffering those threats are ever at our door causing us to doubt now we're going to look at the conclusion of kind of everything that Paul's been saying in this chapter we're going to look at just four small verses verses 31 
to 34. And I want us to bear in mind those two threats that Paul's been dealing with, sin and suffering, because I think Paul is he's going to deal with it again as part of his uh, amazing conclusion to this chapter. And as we read as well, just note the tone of what the Apostle Paul is writing. Paul's often accused of being quite boring. You can't say that after reading Romans chapter 8. Just note the tone, the the passion, the wonder, and and the boldness. Paul is soaring on the truths of the assurance that he has in the gospel. And it causes him to say this, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let me just pray before we look at these verses. My Father, four verses, and yet if we understood what was written in these four verses, if we believed this, what a profound effect that would have on our lives. Father, the truths that are contained here are more precious than gold. Help us to understand them. We cannot work this out. Father, we need your help. Holy Spirit, please help us to understand truths that perhaps we've grown overly familiar with. Lord, we're a mixed bunch here tonight. Some of us just feel cold to the gospel. Some of us feel like we're bad Christians because of what we've done. Some of us are just hurting and feeling pain. And some of us don't know you. So Holy Spirit, we pray that the wonderful truths of these verses would pierce our hearts. Father, I am so aware of how inadequate I am to share these truths. But I pray that you, by your Spirit, would bring them to life. And that we would leave here rejoicing in Christ and boasting in the cross of our Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As Stuart said, I'm I'm from Dundee. Uh, This is my hometown. It's great to be back. I love coming back to Dundee. I went to school in Dundee. Um, I've kind of lost a wee bit of my Dundee accent, I think, since moving to Edinburgh. Uh, My wife and I now live in Stockbridge. Um, So I'm becoming more refined as as I live in Edinburgh. I'm starting to pronounce my T's a bit more, but I'm sure you'll pick me up on that. Um, But I went to school here, and um, I remember in school that there was always certain kids in my year that you simply would not mess with. And the reason that you wouldn't mess with them was not really because of them, but because you knew who their family were. So we would all know that one kid whose dad was so-and-so. And because we knew his parents, no one would go near him, and he could be very bold and very confident and swagger about the school playground, knowing that he was completely untouchable because of who his father was. Well, in these verses before us, Paul is boasting to us about his security and the confidence and the reason he can make these really bold boasts 
is because of God, his heavenly Father. I've called uh, tonight's sermon the wonderful boast of Christian assurance. And we often think of boasting as a negative thing, and to be honest, it usually is because it's usually self-righteous. It's about making ourselves look good. But the boast of Christian assurance is not a boast in ourselves, but it is a boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what lies at the heart of these four verses before us. So my aim this evening is simple. It's that we'd leave here boasting in the cross of Jesus. That even in the midst of the battles we face with our sinful nature or the anguish that we have faced in suffering, we would leave here assured in the love and safety of God our Father. So to that end, I've just got two simple points. Uh, I know that uh, somebody training through the free church, you should have three-point alliteration. I'm afraid I don't have that tonight. Just two very simple points. Firstly, if God is for us, no one can be against us. Second point, if God has justified us, no one can condemn us. Firstly then, if God is for us, no one can be against us. Paul begins, verse 31, by posing uh, the first of six rhetorical questions. What then shall we say to these things? Now what things is Paul talking about? It could be uh, the whole of Romans 8. It could be the section that began way back in Romans chapter 5 as he's concluding that. But more likely than not, I think it's probably a reference to the verses that immediately precede this one. So just read with me verse 28. Paul writes this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul's saying, look, if you're a Christian here tonight, then this is true of you. God predestined you. That is, he chose you to be saved before you were even created, before the foundation of the world was even laid down. He predestined you. He called you. He was the one who called you to him. It wasn't the other way around. God initiated it. God called us to him. He justified you. He has saved you by the blood of his son, Jesus, and made you right before him. And finally, he says, he glorified you. He has raised you up with Christ, and he has seated you with him. So you are his brother, to use the language of Romans 8, and you are the heir of his heavenly estate four words in that verse all in the past tense all of the initiating power of God he predestined he called he justified he glorified it's done it's unchangeable it's unshakable it is absolutely 100% guaranteed for those who follow Jesus so Paul writes this what more can I say what do you say after that What do you say when you've said everything? The answer is this. You say it again. But you use different words. And that's what he does in these closing verses. Why? Because we need to hear it again. Because it's wonderful. 
We need to hear this every day because what he is talking about is of infinite worth and value. You never tire of it. The gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, is not some flat, two-dimensional piece of information that we just hear once and then that's it. We've got it. It's more like a a beautiful, multifaceted diamond that we can rotate and see how many different ways the light hits off it. Paul's passion is evident. What else can I say? It's so wonderful. I need to phrase it again. I need to turn the diamond. I need to see how the light hits it at a different angle. And so he writes this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul saying, God is for you as a Christian. Makes sense when you look at the previous verse. The one who predestined, called, and justified, and glorified you is for you. And if he is for you, then who could be against you? Now, just think about how you would answer that. Think about how you would answer that question. Who could be against us? Well, lots of people. Lots of people are against us, are they not? Remember, Paul's Paul's writing this to Christians who are struggling with their assurance of the gospel because they're suffering. People are persecuting them. Some of us here may indeed feel that, that there's opposition, that there is hostility because we follow Jesus. Maybe there's brokenness, there's family strife in your life, there's hurts and tears and and feelings of despair and isolation and emptiness. No one against us. You know, it was six months ago now, some of you may remember this. Um, It was actually the, the week that we were looking at these verses in church. But 21 Egyptian men were kidnapped from their homes and from their workplace. They were brought out to a beach in Libya and publicly executed by Islamic fundamentalists. You may remember the image of these men kneeling down on that beach. Why were they executed? Because they confessed Jesus as Lord. And these were real men, real, real brothers in Christ, with real jobs and real families who had real names. And then we read this in Romans 8.32. If God is for us, who could be against us? Is Paul naive? I don't think so. Look, no one, no one knew the pain of persecution for Jesus' sake like the Apostle Paul did. What he means by this statement is that if we are in Christ, if God is for us, no one can ever successfully be against us. No one can ever successfully be against us. The world, the flesh, the devil, they will assault the people of God, but never to any avail. Even the wickedness of this world is under the sovereign control of a loving father. God works for the good of all those who love him. Romans 8.28. Or as Joseph said to his brothers back in Genesis 50. Uh, If you know the Joseph story, it's not like the camp Andrew Lloyd Webber musical uh, where he's dancing about with a multicolored coat. It is a brutal, barbaric story about how Joseph's brothers tried to kill him and then sold him off into slavery. And God used those events to bring about 
their salvation. And at the end of that story, when Joseph is reunited with his brothers in Genesis 50, he says this, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. All of what is happening in our lives is being used for our ultimate good. We may never understand why. We may never know what possible good could come out of what I am experiencing now. But if God is for us, nothing can be against us. Even if they cut off your head, you will be with Christ in glory. That's why Paul says in verse 37 of this chapter that amidst our sufferings, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now hold on. <laughs> we may, is, this, is, this just, is this wishful thinking? Is this just a way of trying to deal with, with the seeming randomness of suffering and pain? How can I really know that God is for me? Well, listen to the logic that the apostle used is in verse 32. Um, one minister calls this the sound logic of heaven. If you follow Jesus and you doubt tonight that he is really for you because of what you're experiencing, this is what the apostle Paul says to you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now notice the language he's using. God gave up his own son. His son the one whom he had loved, the one whom he had loved for all eternity like no other. He gave him up for us. Paul's talking about the cross here. Jesus was given up to the cruel, barbaric torture of the cross, not so much by Pontius Pilate or Herod or Judas or the Pharisees. Yes, they played their part, they had a responsibility, but ultimately they have no authority over the Son of God. Jesus was given up to the cross by his Father, first and foremost. The suffering that he faces as he is hanging there, humiliated, naked, beaten, tortured, and facing the rejection and the wrath of God, he faced because God gave him up for it. Why? Because he loves us. And that is what... He had to do for us to be saved. That's why Paul writes this in Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that whilst we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Do you think that would have been. Do you think that would have been easy. For the father to give up his son. You know the more precious something is. The harder it is to give away. The more you love something, the more costly it would be to give it away. Some of you here are parents. You know, it would be hard if you had to give up your house or your car or your job for someone. Imagine having to give up your own child for someone who cared nothing for you. And yet, if wicked, rebellious sinners like you and me here tonight are to be saved we who cared nothing for God, if we are to be saved, God has to give up his own son. Um, I was, there's a minister in America called John Piper, and he's got some very helpful, what he calls preaching labs on Romans 8. Um, and he said this, it really uh, struck with, really stuck with me um, when he said it. He, he said, do you know what the biggest obstacle 
to your salvation was? What's the biggest obstacle to our salvation? The biggest obstacle to our salvation is the love that God the Father has for his Son. Because if we are to be saved, if all that wretched sin in our life that is worthy of eternal damnation is to be taken from us so that we can be declared righteous, as Paul said in Romans 3, then God has to take that which he loves most in the universe and give him up to be hung up like a piece of meat and tortured by the wickedness of humanity and suffer under the weight of divine wrath as wave upon wave of God's anger for our sin is poured out on him. That is the hardest and most costly thing about our salvation. And God did it. And we dare to think, well, God can't be for me because I can't get my car started this morning. God can't be for me because I've had a bad week. God can't be for me because my relationships are struggling. I've not got that job that I've wanted. Do you see how foolish that sounds against the backdrop of the cross? He gave you his son. He gave you that which was infinitely precious to him. And that means that, that if you're here and you say you're a Christian, God is for you every single second of every single day. There is never a moment where God is not for you. God is always for you. And there is nothing greater that he can give us to assure us that that is true. If he can give us Christ, Paul says, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? doesn't mean that, that if, you, if you have Christ, then you can get whatever you want. A good father wouldn't give their children whatever they want. But it does mean, Romans 8 verse 17, that we are heirs through suffering to God's heavenly estate. It does mean, Romans eight twenty eight, that God will use all that is happening in our life for our ultimate good. You see, the logic of heaven makes sense of that. If God can make the ultimate good, which is our salvation, come out of the ultimate act of evil, the crucifixion of his son, then can he not do it with the wickedness, the pain and the hurt that we face in our own life? And I know in these dark moments of suffering, some of you here are suffering. We cry our pains out to God. We cry out by the Spirit. We cry, Abba, Father, but we must also apply the sound logic of heaven to our minds so that even through tears and pain, we can boast the bold boast of the cross. If God is for me, you cannot touch me. I'm in the safest hands possible. And I know that that's true because he gave his son to die for me. That's Paul's first boast. <clears throat> Let's move on to the second one. Second point. If God has justified us, no one can condemn us. We see that in verses 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now what Paul does now is he gets the Christian and he gets us to fast forward our minds to the final day of judgment, the day when we will stand before the throne of God after we have died, the day when we will stand before God. And he gets us to look at that end point, to look at what, what will happen to us then so that we can have a rock of assurance now. 
Um, when I was in, I'd spent a year in Aberdeen working with UCCF, uh, doing their relay program in Aberdeen. And uh, during that time, I got very much into uh, the TV show 24. Um, and I was hooked on it, um, probably to the detriment of my job. Um, but there was another girl who was doing uh, relay with me, and she'd never watched 24, and that was a, a crime in my mind, uh, so I was determined to get her into 24. So I gave her the box set uh, of one of the seasons, um, but I've got a really bad habit of putting the discs in the wrong point of the box. Um, so she started watching this, um, but basically I'd put the last disc in the first slot. So she was watching the last four episodes of 24. Why she was watching all four of them, I don't know, um, but she watched it all. And it kind of ruined the show for her because she knew what was going to happen. And 24, if you've ever seen it, is built upon the premise that it kind of leaves you a cliffhanger at the end of each episode. But she'd already watched the end, so she knew by the time she went, she'd figured out that she'd been watching the end and she went around to watch it again, she knew what was going to happen. She knew that Jack Bauer won, that he single-handedly defeated the forces of terror, she knew, I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for some of you, but she, she knew that was going to happen. So that every time she watched it, she wasn't surprised because she knew what the end was going to be. And Paul's saying here that if you're a Christian, you know the end. You know the end. You know what the verdict will be on that day. On that day of judgment, it will always, always, always be not guilty, not condemned. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? Again, think, think about, think about like the previous point, how we'd answer that. Who's going to bring a charge against us? Well, lots of things can and do bring a charge against us if we're Christians. We can have charges brought against us by others. We can have charges brought against us by Satan, which is why in the Bible he is called the accuser. And perhaps more often than not, I think, our own conscience will bring a charge against us. Can reflect on our sins and we can condemn ourselves when we know if we think God can't God can't accept me because of what I did last night God can't accept me because of the stuff that I think or I say we bring a charge against ourselves but again, like the previous point, Paul is saying that regardless of the charges, there can be no successful charge brought against you and me. Not Satan, not by our sinful nature. Why? Because it is God who has declared us righteous. It is God himself who has justified us. Notice again how Paul's emphasis here is on God's initiation. This section has all the language of a courtroom. The day when we die, we will be brought before God to give an account of our lives. God is the right and true judge of humanity. But God is not some neutral observer like a judge we would have in a courtroom today. God is also the most offended party. God is the one that we have hurt. God is the one whose heart we break when we sin and rebel against him. He is the most offended. He is the most hurt. But Paul is saying here that God, the one that we've hurt the most... The judge has declared a verdict on us already and it is no condemnation. Not 
guilty. Not because of us, not because we were brilliant, not because there was anything worthy of us, but again, it's because of the cross. He is pronounced not guilty because Jesus has taken our punishment as he was crucified. That's done. That's why Jesus guaranteed the verdict when he cried out these three words as he was being crucified. It is finished. That's true of you and me here. No matter what you've done, if you're a Christian, no matter how bad, no matter how ravaged with guilt or how utterly, utterly unworthy we feel of God's grace, no condemnation. But we may, we may think, well, well, I just don't feel that. I don't feel that God has saved me. I don't feel that he could love me. I don't feel righteous. To which I would respond, well, of course you don't feel Righteous. Because the righteousness that we need for God to accept us is not our own, but is seated right now at the right hand of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We feel our sin because that is our own. But your righteousness is not yours. You don't, you don't feel justified. It's not you who justifies. It's God. It's the verdict he declares. It's not necessarily something you feel. It's kind of like um, being married or, or growing a year older. It's not necessarily something that you feel. It's something that has happened to you, that has been proclaimed to you. This is a verdict that God has put on us. And if God has done it, do we really think we could undo it? That somehow our sin is greater than the act of Jesus' death for us. This is why the great reformer Martin Luther could say this. Very famous quote from Luther. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and who made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. How do we know that's true? Because let's be honest, if if you're weighed down by guilt through sin, this is really hard to accept. Well, Paul again applies the sound logic of heaven to this boast in verses 34. Three reasons we can be confident to boast like this. One, Christ Jesus who has died. His death on the cross was absolutely and totally sufficient to deal with our sins, past, present, and future. That has been done. Second reason, Christ Jesus was raised who is at the right hand of God Jesus' resurrection shows us that the deal was sealed. He is risen. He is conquered. Death could not hold him down. His mission to save us from the penalty of our sin was verified by the fact that he lives right now. He is here, alive right now, seated at the right hand of God, finished his work of salvation. And third reason, this is pretty incredible, Paul writes, Christ Jesus, who is indeed interceding for us. You see, the assurance that we need that there is no condemnation is not only seen in in Jesus' past work, but in what he is currently doing right now for us. Right now, right at this very second. He is interceding on our behalf. What does that mean? It means that he is constantly 
representing us to the Father. Constantly bringing our case before the Father. Do you know that Jesus is praying for you? If you want to know what that looks like, look at John 17. Jesus is there now as God, with God, speaking to God on our behalf. Let me just wrap all this up by by saying this. It's incredible boasts of assurance. Life is chaotic, it's tumultuous, it's difficult. No matter who you are, no matter what you believe here tonight, I think we could probably all say that. It's unpredictable. There's nothing lasting. There's nothing uh, steady enough to make us feel really permanently secure. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes uh, in the Bible says that it's like a vapor. It's a mist. It's nothing tangible that we can really hold on to that will give us lasting security. But Paul is showing all of us here today that here is a rock that is found in the good news of Jesus' salvation. Look, I know as Christians we struggle to say these boasts. Suffering and guilt, they make us feel so distant from God. But that is where we have to do what Paul does and apply the sound logic of heaven to our minds. When we do that, we will have a rock of assurance that helps us through the difficulties of life and the brokenness of our human nature and brings us at last into the eternal rest of our Father. I want to draw your attention to that very important word in verse 32. If. If God is for you, then this is true. And we need to know this because that means that if you are here this evening and you're not a follower of Jesus, then the opposite's true. I could not think of anything worse than that for God to be against us. But let me use these four verses as an appeal to you this evening that this boast could be true of you. Come to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, and then verse 31 to 34 will be true, no matter what you've done no matter what's happening in life, verses 31 to 34 will be true of you here. And you'll be able to say, God is for me. Who can be against me? God has justified me. Who can condemn me? Here is a bedrock of security and blessed assurance that we can have amidst the chaos of life. Oh, to be found in Christ, it is such a wonderful thing. How can we be separated from such love? That's where the flow of Paul's thought will take him as he finishes off this chapter and you can go and read it for yourself. How could we be separate from that love shown through Christ, such safety and security, we dare not appeal to our feeble or damnable good works on that final day, but we will appeal to the cross of our Savior, the one given to save us, the one who died, who was raised to life, and even now intercedes for us. What a joy and a liberation it is to say the words that we will sing in this final hymn, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home 
here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That is the wonderful boast of Christian assurance. Let me pray. My Father, these are such amazing words condensed into such a small space. Such amazing, amazing truths of the gospel. That if you are for us, no one could be against us. If you yourself have justified us, then no one could condemn us. Father, implant these truths deep into our hearts. Help us to understand, help us to apply the logic of heaven to think about this. To, to get our minds into gear and to meditate upon what you have done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, may this boast be true of everyone here this evening so that we can have confidence and security knowing that life is going to be hard and difficult and painful. But here is something that can keep us steady and strong. And So we pray, Lord, that you would cause this to bear upon our hearts so that we would indeed be steady and strong. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close by singing the words of that hymn in Christ alone. Um, we'll stand and sing as the guys begin to play. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.